This is Ryan Young for CKUT 90.3 FM and Ecolibrium. We are here with Mark Mann, who is the Associate Editor-in-Chief of Beside Magazine, which is a very interesting magazine when it comes to the environment because it attempts to bridge the gap between humans and nature. And at this magazine, they bring together journalists, philosophers, artists, chefs, farmers, scientists, and adventurers to empower people with the tools to live a more meaningful life and build a more sustainable future. And it's published by Beside Media. And so, Mark, uh, tell me uh, how you got involved with the magazine, first of all. Well, thanks, Ryan. Uh, yeah, I've been a, an independent journalist for, uh, I guess, nigh on a decade. And uh, we were freelancing before then. And um, uh, moved moved to Montreal because I met my uh, my wife and uh, had been living in Toronto and working in Toronto, and came, you know, on a gamble really, and and continued to work in Toronto, but was just very fortunate to get connected to Beside. Never anticipated to find such a uh, a beautiful publication that was committed to to being bilingual, where I could work as a as an anglophone you know, on a team of francophones and and create this you know really vision oriented publication with a focus on. On nature and culture, so yeah, it's been it's been awesome. Been about two or three years since I've been involved. Yeah, nice. And what do you think is unique about the the publication? I'm not sure that there's much else like it. I mean, I think it comes through at a key moment of transition, um, to put it a bit grandly. But I, I think it's really true that our a lot of the culture of say outdoor magazines, outdoor adventure magazines, as well as um, environmentally focused magazines, conservation focused magazines. A lot of that stuff is shifting and some of that's generational, you know, it's just a, and the world's changing. I think Beside is kind of landing at a moment or appearing in the world at a moment when there's a deeper understanding of uh, kind of the importance of um, if we're going to protect nature if we're going to value nature, we have to be in nature and experiencing nature. So there's that emphasis, that kind of broader emphasis on, um, you know, hunting and fishing as well as farming, as well as urban parks, as well, you know, just the, the kind of broad spectrum uh, engagement, you know, that's, um, it's not leave no trace, you know, it's, it's more, more focused on, uh, yeah, just uh, the transformation of, of connecting with the environment. Um, so it's, it's got a younger focus probably and uh, real, real strong emphasis on beautiful images and um, which is, is common but it's, it's, it's not wildlife photography, it's more rooted in um, I think you know artistic photography, contemporary photography with a, with a natural focus. Mm. Yeah. And how, how has it been for the magazine trying to get its name out there? And um, what, 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 what do magazines do to try and get their name out there, whether it's in Montreal or, or across Canada? Mm -hmm. Well, maybe, I mean, to, maybe to answer that question, I'll, I'll just sort of share a bit of the origin story. It's interesting. The, the magazine uh, was, has two co-founders, uh, Jean-Daniel Petit and Eliane Cadieux. And they were uh, together part of the founding of a previous company called ABTB and Company, which is a canoe kayak company. Um, and ABTB and Company was founded in the ABTB region of Quebec, um, uh, I don't know, seven or eight years ago or something. 
um, taking over from a, you know, a fiberglass canoe company that was, had been around for a long time. And they uh, kind of renovated it and relaunched it. But in this like, you know, this really values oriented way where, you know, they were telling their customers not to buy new, but to fix their old canoes. And you know what I mean? And, and also on that belief of, um, you know, to protect waterways, we need more people to be on the waterways. So, you know, emphasizing that accessibility and, um, you know, and then all the other things that we care about, like um, sustaining local traditional craftsmen by sourcing from them and stuff like that. You know what I mean? And because those guys, they actually had come from like a, a media background, uh, sort of advertising and, 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 and that kind of thing. So they, they knew storytelling, you know, they, they understood. Yeah, just they started making these beautiful videos and stuff, uh, you know, of people out on the water and canoes and kayaks doing these crazy long trips and, and stuff like that. And so I think they conceived beside in this way um, they had found a lot of success for the for that company and then conceived beside as a way to kind of yeah like amplify those values that they were um, trying to embody um, just in, in making beautiful high quality locally made you know um, small vessels <laughs> and uh, uh, so but when I think I think when beside launched people connected to it right away sort of in its own right they hired Catherine Metayer, who was a, a kind of a real inspirational, visionary kind of curator editor. Uh, she has a, a team called Maison Blanc, and they, you know, art curation and stuff like that. So she just brought a a vision that I think just really connected. It's it's been interesting because as a journalist, I've been involved with publications that were really floundering and 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 uh, flagging in the you know, the internet era, it's extremely hard to adapt and thrive. Um, so I've, you know, just been seen it over and over again, been involved with publications that just kind of disappear overnight and stuff, you know, and so um, it's been really interesting to get on this um, trip with Beside because people are really resonating and subscribing and, and some of that I think has to do with it being um, the emphasis that we put on the print object, which people really value to be able to hold on to it and, and uh, have this beautiful publication. But um, yeah, I don't know. I think it's just really like, uh, I think people are responding. I, I, I can't, as I'm like an editor, so I'm just like fully focused on the stories. You know what I mean? Um, um, and just trying to tell the best possible stories and find the right people. but. I know it's been very popular in Quebec, and so that's kind of been <clears throat> tons of support here in the region. And then, um, but yeah, we distribute across North America and Europe, so we're we're really kind of getting around. People are finding us in Portland, and you know what I mean, San Fran, and New York. You know, so it's it's going well. Yeah. And and you were telling me before we started the interview that um, like these two gentlemen that started it, they're they're francophones, obviously. And um, but the the magazine is in two languages. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, everything is published in both languages, so it all comes in. Uh, we get to draw from the full panoply of francophone and anglophone writers and, and storytellers and photographers, and then we just put in the work. And it's a big operation. Um, you know, we have translators working for us, and and. Um, the team, our editorial team, is you know bilingual. But uh, Caroline Baquet, who's the French language senior editor, 
does the French stories, I do the English stories, and then, uh, and then we just uh, mix it all up, <laughs> you know? So the name of the magazine in French is different? No, actually, it's Beside. Yeah, okay. yeah, it's not uh, A Côté or... Yeah, yeah, okay. it's, it's Beside. Yeah, uh, yeah. That's cool. Um, and uh, tell me about uh, the latest issue. Like, what's the theme of the latest issue and, and what would people find in there? Yeah, of course. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's nice that we're speaking uh, this morning because I actually just got my copy this morning. So I've been, <laughs> I spent the whole morning uh, just going back through and reading it. Um, so uh, this is issue nine for us. Um, uh, we're, we're very theme oriented, so we always give a, a strong overarching theme um, to every issue. And this issue is themed on the idea of uh, Nordicity or Nordicite. Uh, I, think the, I think your Quebecois listeners might um, uh, recognize that term. I think it resonates a bit more with, with Francophones uh, initially because I think the, the concept of Nordicite, from my understanding, I'm, I'm, I'm an East Coaster, so I'm, I'm from PEI, but uh, from what they tell me, <laughs> the team tells me, the uh, um, like like the hockey team, the Quebec Nordiques, which don't <laughs> exist anymore. But. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. I think it's like it, it, it. The concept actually comes from this guy Louis MLA, who created this polar value index, which was actually used by the Canadian government and the Quebec government to uh, give a kind of numerical value to the degree of northernness of any place between basically the 49th parallel and the Arctic, which has a Nordic value of 100 or something, and it, and it goes down, right? So it's like, it's kind of interesting because it, it takes in these, uh, a lot of uh, different elements, not just, you know, weather or climate, also, you know, proximity to services and stuff like that. And it's interesting because it's, it's this kind of technical measure that is being used in some quarters to also as a way of kind of describing climate change as well. But the, in Quebec, the concept is, uh, uh, I think, understood more broadly to, to the idea of like living in sync with the seasons and basically being kind of attuned to the north as a, like an outdoor uh, culture and not just a place where you hibernate, you know what I mean, and, um, <clears throat> in the winter, you know, and reemerge in the spring. And then to connecting that through to English-speaking Canada and, and to the North, as well as, you know, Scandinavian countries and, and, and uh, stuff, uh, I think the idea of the North is, is, you know, that we the North kind of thing. It's gotten quite uh, popular to, to think about um, being North. And at the same time, I think we wanted to sort of trouble that idea, too. So we wanted to bring in a lot of perspectives that we're gonna see that you know like Caribbean perspectives in Montreal or 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 you know decolonizing perspectives of, of uh, you know indigenous communities in the north where you know the sort of myth of the north is kind of imposed on them um, by settlers and um, that's something totally different than the reality of of uh, northern lifestyle or northern tradition you know so I think if you, if you look through this issue um, there's really so many different you know, down to like playing basketball in, in, in Quebec City to, you know, indigenous guardians who are, you know, protecting the land in, in northern BC and, and, and the Northwest Territories to citizen science movements in, in uh, none of it. And, and uh, um, so it's really cool. Yeah, uh, it's an exciting issue. Mm. Yeah. Um, so 
tell me about what you contributed to this issue. Mm -hmm. uh, so we worked on, we always have a dossier, sort of a theme within the theme. And this will be interesting to your, to your listeners, I think, uh, who are uh, um, interested in environmentalism. It's a, it's a sort of key concept in, in um, ecology, I think, over the last few decades. It's this idea of shifting baseline syndrome. So we tied together a number of uh, essays and stories to explore this concept. Um, so just to summarize it quickly, shifting baseline syndrome refers to this idea that uh, we all kind of set a personal baseline for nature um, unconsciously that's sort of tied to our first encounters with it or we create what's sometimes called a point zero um, in our childhood or whatever you know this habit is reflected in scientific uh, practice um, it was observed by an ocean uh, and fisheries scientist named Daniel Pauly. Have you heard of him? Yeah. Yeah, I've, I, actually, I actually interviewed him once for, for, for the show and for a documentary I was working on. Oh, okay, great. He seems like a great guy. He's hilarious and I've uh, really enjoyed, um, I didn't get to speak to him, but I've watched uh, his videos and stuff. So he introduced this idea. It was, it was anecdotal um, when he started. He was basically saying um, that his colleagues and, and himself we're setting kind of markers for rehabilitation. So it's really crucial um, if you look at the degradation of a species, uh, the marker for the healthy version of that, people would tie to their first time they start observing it. And they wouldn't really realize that they were doing that. And, and, and then when he sort of followed through, he has all these sort of stunning examples of um, you know, fishermen uh, who are catching fish that are a tenth of the size or something, you know, and, and, and are just as happy as they were before. And, and the, the past is sort of erased. And, uh, and so then scientists have followed through on that and, and sort of empirically validated those observations by essentially doing this really creative kind of archival research of uh, uh, drawing on these on pretty interesting sources and stuff too to mark um, sort of basically peak uh, populations and stuff being much, much higher. And so we kind of have this false sense of recovery. Um, talk about, you know, eagles or whales recovering when in fact they're still um, way, way, way below what might be, um, you know, a healthy or uh, ecologically healthy for our biosphere or whatever, you know. That's the sort of scientific version of the idea it goes further than that, I think, in the application to, to our personal lives. Um, there was a study done uh, on Twitter, actually, just to, just to, just to measure, um, maybe you spotted this one, it was to measure how quickly are we normalize changes in weather. And it was like, it, it was like a study on like billions of tweets about the weather to see um, I don't know exactly how it worked, but it was sort of uh, analyzing people's responses to strange weather. And it, the, the um, uh, researchers concluded that people basically have a memory for changes in weather that only goes back between two and eight years. And then it's just sort of, we've just adapted, you know? <laughs> 
Makes sense. Makes sense. Yeah, yeah. So it's something that I think everyone should really be aware of, you know, because you, you really have to be, well, it's just good to be aware of it. I mean, it is a feature of our psychology. It does speak to, you know, resilience in a sense and adaptability and, and some of these qualities where we, that we need to live in a changing world, you know, to normalize things. Um, but we run a great risk, you know. And, and, you know, that's why I think it's so important and it's so rarely done that, you know, when you speak to people who are truly senior citizens uh-huh. in their 80s and 90s, you always hear, uh, you know, you can sometimes find out what it was like in terms of the abundance of various species of animals. For sure. Back then when they were young. Yeah. I mean, well, I, so I, I wrote an essay for this issue exploring this idea and uh, the version of that uh, that I found, um, I'll just diverge quickly. Uh, one anecdote that from my own family, uh, my grandfather drove a bread truck in Fredericton and he, uh, used to drive across the river, um, all winter long on the ice and, uh, like on an ice bridge, like a road across the ice. Yeah. yeah. Straight, yeah. straight on the surface of the ice, you know, and, uh, from what I understand, I haven't verified this, that that river barely freezes anymore, you know? I mean, so that's a pretty, that's just, you know, two generations. Uh, I was looking at uh, birding, actually. I, uh, just a topic I've been interested in. I'm a birder myself. Oh, are you? Okay, okay, that's interesting. So, you know, if you read my essay, you'll see I'm coming from it from a sort of novice uh, position. Um, just got interested and started to but I interviewed um, I, I sort of took that my kind of ignorance as like a moment of kind of setting a baseline you know what I mean like because because when you kind of get caught with the bug or whatever you're just interested to see any bird right like it's kind of it's fun to to count sparrows or whatever you know I mean I'm you know happy to see a starling or something you know what I mean like initially you know and then you start then you catch sight of something else and it's common but it's you know that whole excitement of of birding you know what um so it's an interesting time for birding because the eBird app has has been really popular and it's started to create a kind of ad hoc database for for birding that I from what I understand speaking to birders in the city and you probably know this very well and have spoken to them you know this has become actually a pretty important um uh, archive of, uh, of bird populations. Um, but I went on a tour with Joel Kutu, who I don't know if you've met Yeah, him. I know him and I've interviewed him for this show as well. I'm not surprised. Yeah, he's a great guy. He's, 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 uh, so, um, and Joel made the observation to me that, uh, you know, when a birder goes out now, they might, they might be very excited to see the populations that they can come across in some of those great spots, like out by the airport, the techno park or whatever or Nuns Island. But now, you know, Nuns Island's been built over and a lot of those owls aren't there anymore. And if you'd had any of these old timers who were birding 50 years ago would have seen way, 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 way more than we see today, you know? I was in Nuns Island as a kid, you know, because I started birding early. And I remember being 11, 12, 13 years old and seeing amazing things on Nuns Island, you know, which you can't really see anymore. I mean, there's still a little, little pocket left there, mm-hmm. but it's not like it was. Yeah, you know, and it's like even the techno park is is unprotected, so I'm you know it's they've managed to preserve a little bit of wetland out there, but certainly that's at risk, you know, and it seems to be a pretty pretty vibrant spot for for the um, in the flyway for birds coming through, you know. 
for sure. You know, I do Feeder Watch. I don't know if you've heard of Feeder Watch before. No, not So really. it's, you know, it's all, they're all connected, eBird, Feeder Watch, but uh, it's people who feed birds in the winter. Uh, mm. They actually, you know, it's a citizen science project. You record every two weeks uh, for two days in a row your observations of the birds visiting your feeder, yeah. you know, and, and uh, you, you mark down what the weather was, uh, how, how, how many hours you actually watched the feeders, and so on and so forth. And I've been doing it for 10 years at least, I think. Oh, wow. And uh, I just moved, but my, you know, so I have a new location now. But my, my old location, I have like, you know, eight years of data Wow. You know, and and I did see there were trends I saw, and a very specific one is house sparrows, which are a very kind of common in the city yeah. uh, species of bird that was originally introduced from from Europe, yeah. and is kind of a bird that was not desirable here because it outcompeted the yeah. native birds. But funny enough, yes, they're still common in the cities, but you know, in my area St. Anne de Bellevue which is kind of like a mix of urban and suburban yeah uh you you they're they're, they're not there anymore like uh, I, I've been doing my feeder watch for the last two weeks not a single house sparrow mm. you know and that would never be the case when I was younger or would never be the case even 10 years ago 10 years ago one of the most most common birds that would come to your feeder would be house sparrows oh wow so for some reason their populations are shifting and and we don't know why. That's interesting. Yeah, that was that was. I started feeding this summer, and and that was, of course, the bird that uh, almost the only bird that was around. You yeah. know, uh, um, oh, it's interesting. Have they been replaced by another kind of bird, or are they they're just not showing up? Well, I mean, there there was the uh, house finch that, when I was young, was rare, and the house finch is originally a bird from the western part of North America, so native to North America, but in the western part of North America, and they were released in the east here and there, and they they started to you know populate and expand, and now they're very common, and they they nest uh, around here. So now, uh, you know, I always have at least three or four house finches in my yard, and uh, you know, so they're not replacing in numbers the same numbers that you would have seen in house sparrows, but they are kind of a bird in the same niche. They're same. They're a finch. Mm. They eat seeds primarily, and uh, so it it may be explained by that. Mm. But it's hard to know. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, you'll appreciate the uh, this article then because I'm really making an argument for participating in these types of databases. You know, it's uh, um, I think that you know we need to train ourselves to think in a different time scale. You know, of, uh, we can't really be so uh, easily trapped in our puny, you know, brains, <laughs> our puny human uh, uh, lifespans, you know. And, and I think that, uh, you know, it might just be a small contribution, but I, I do think that um, these databases are actually um, kind of a, a, you know, a vote for the long view, like that kind of, the, I mean, scientists think this way. They think, you know, they don't do one-year studies, you know. It takes them sometimes decades or more to 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 get the picture, you know. And that's also, you know, the the other thing that we were looking at is the insect declines, right? And and that's a shocking, you know, story that we're, you know, we have we have really have to be grateful to citizen 
scientists for alerting us to what's happening because the science, you know, it was people that were just dedicated to um, tracking biomass of insects, you know, which is sort of a thankless thing to do in a way, um, except for that they were able to show, you know, these declines. And that's really significant because it affects bird populations, of course. And, um, and also it's not the same as the loss of the charismatic megafauna. You know, it's, it's, it's these precipitous declines you still see insects, but you kind of, they call it the windshield phenomenon. You've heard of it. I have heard of it. And I, I always wonder, uh, is it, if we were to take a helicopter and get, you know, dropped into the middle of the boreal forest somewhere in the north of Canada and, um, you know, be far from any road or from any industry, would the populations of insects there Mm. be normal? Because I, I believe that the main reason why the insects have, have plummeted everywhere else where there is a lot of agriculture and mm-hmm. humans is because of pesticide use, you know? Yes. Uh, but that's why I'm curious, is, is right. this phenomena yeah. um, more of a phenomena in the areas where humans are concentrated or is it global? And then if it's global, then there's even more going on to the story. Right? Yeah, that's, that's interesting. I, I think that there's only a handful of studies, and they're mostly in Europe, um, mostly German and then Dutch, I think. And I, I know there was one, it seemed like the German study was looking at nature reserves. They were collecting from these bioreserves. So it's possible that it is having more of a global impact, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, tell me about, a, you know, another thing that you contributed to the magazine that you were really interested in, whether it would be this issue or a past issue that... Uh, yeah, yeah, sure, sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, uh, um, we, uh, there's, 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 there's a lot of uh, exciting stories. I, you know, we, one of the things that I, I found, one of the kind of ways that we we took a twist on this Nordicity uh, idea. We had a writer who'd recently spent time in Qatar in the desert, um, and that uh, it, it really offers a kind of inverted view of what we're experiencing in the North. So we had a, we had a firsthand account. On the one hand, um, a young Inuit woman, and they were actually also kind of engaged in a, in a form of documentation. This, this was in the same shifting baseline dossier, these, these uh, Inuit teenagers that had formed a film collective, and they were doing a lot of interviews with their elders, which I think is also just a, uh, a way of taking stock and not just accepting whatever's happening right now, you know, but really drawing in the, that perspective of the elders. And, and uh, I was really happy with, with what um, she contributed um, in terms of just it being a very personal, rooted perspective on the changes that they see, you know, like when they drive their ATVs, you know, permafrost changes, the land gets wobbly, you know what I mean? Like the land goes, where they, used, where they can't drive where they used to drive because they'll get thrown from their, their ATVs, you know, as an example. So it's, I think it's really helpful to to get into the body and, and, and know that that what it feels like. It feels like getting jostled around when you're on the land when you didn't used to, you know, stuff like that. And then we also had this, this a writer who we were fortunate had, had been in, in Doha where they have all of these um, sort of <laughs> like uh, snow 
playgrounds indoors in their malls, you know, and this is, it's, I think, the wealthiest country in the world, or one of the wealthiest, and so they're channeling all this oil wealth, which is, of course, <laughs> you know, contributing to the situation that we're in, and, and air conditioning the desert, and, uh, you know, playing, uh, going sledding inside uh, with snow that they make themselves, you know, so I find that just so uh, striking uh, as an image. Um, so useful to see the two, the two side by side, I think. Absolutely. And maybe uh, I'd like to ask you a question about yourself. So being a writer yourself, um, what are some qualities that you think maybe that you recognize in yourself that are good if you are going to be a writer or do, do you ever think about that? And does that ever, you know, come into play in your mind when thinking about writing as a as a skill or as a, a metier yeah sure are you thinking in terms of like environmental journalism or more well, broadly i guess more broadly but you i guess we, i'd be interested in that specific area as well because mm -hmm. that is what you're doing with this magazine yeah so. sure well i guess one thing i've been thinking about a lot uh as a you know I've been primarily a journalist and then just in the last few years more of an editor and um, it's been really nice at Beside to be um, not just not having to write every story that comes up but being able to uh, uh, assign the story and, and uh, get pitches from people and, and uh, work with other storytellers because uh, I mean, fundamentally, I'm just, I just love story, you know, and, uh, and helping people develop stories and finding the angles and ways to tell it, um, and also ways that I wouldn't think of. So I, I, get, to, I get to touch a lot more stories than I, than I used to, which is, which is really enjoyable. And, and for me, the metaphor that I have been thinking about the most uh, is actually photography or the idea of framing. Um, I like photography, uh, not particularly good at it, but I, 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 uh, I like the way that you can throw up four lines on the world and create a composition in an instant and, uh, how you can do that anywhere at any time with anything. And there's always some, um, sort of within the, the field of vision, there's, there's a there's a possible frame, you know, um, that would uh, uh, tell a story, and and uh, I think about that all the time with writing, because um, you know I think every every writer, every journalist, every storyteller, there's this initial overwhelm, you know, when you uh, see you know something dramatic happening, or you see a tension in the world, or you see a topic that is important um, you get that kind of full sweep of of the whole thing and and that's reality you know reality doesn't um, fit in as a story you know because uh, it's everything and so then then that work of um, <clears throat> finding a way to to um, create a frame um, that lets people see what's in front of them because that's essentially what um, framing does it, it it's like a <clears throat> you know uh, a device that helps us see you know um, and without it we would just be it would be a glaze or a wash you know <clears throat> so I think that's the gift of 
of storytelling. And, uh, and, I, and I think that, uh, you know, from there it becomes a labor of sort of almost like zooming in and out, you know, uh, and just getting and or moving your own body uh, um, um, closer or farther away to, to see uh, the way you look at a painting and you walk backwards and then you walk up and put your nose to it. Kind of a, um, uh, that type of modulation, I think, is a, a really... Um, you know, that's the gift, you know, I mean, that's the work that people do. And, and then beyond that, uh, I, the, uh, the other thing I, I think that is so um, crucial, especially, I think, you know, with environmental storytelling, there's a way I, that readers feel like, often feel like they already know what they're going to get, you know, and there's this sense of taking your medicine, kind of, you know, and, uh, um, and, uh, you know, it's this kind of um, labor that we do because we care, but it's sort of unpleasant, you know, and, and, <laughs> and uh, I don't think it needs to be like that. And, uh, and I think that we can kind of save ourselves from uh, sort of going dull, you know, on the, because of needing to pound the uh, table. Um, uh, by looking at details, you know, I think, I think it's really, I think it's the detail that, that will bring us back, you know, to what we're trying to learn or trying to understand. Yeah. And another question I had was the magazine you, you work for beside magazine, um, and the founders of it definitely are based in Quebec and even a, mm -hmm. a, a B2B, you, you mentioned that area, but Montreal. You're from the Maritimes. You live in Montreal. The magazine, I guess, is is housed here in Montreal. Mm -hmm. um, what do you f how what, what what do you think about Montreal that lends itself to publishing a magazine like this? Is, mm. it, is it what is it about the scene of of the cultural scene or the the literary scene or whatever mm. you know that 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 kind of helped birth a magazine like this? Yeah, um, yeah, I have some thoughts about that. I, I, I think that... Um, and, and how have you found it, just yourself being here, living here, you know? Yeah, sure, yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's funny because actually right before I moved to Montreal, um, I, had, I was in the process of getting to know the woman that would be my wife who lives here. Um, I was also in the process of getting priced out of Toronto too. <laughs> and... Uh, um, it's funny because I had, I had come to a, a moment of decision where uh, the choice was to move to Montreal, where I'd got, done my undergrad, so I, I knew the city and loved it. Uh, and also, you know, made a, quite a lot of committed effort to, to learn French as best I can. So, um, or I was going to move into a school bus in a field you know, on a farm north of Toronto. <laughs> you know, that was my sort of second plan. And I was really tottering between the two. And thank God I, I came here. Um, but it was, you know, the sort of call to be uh, outside was really strong for me. And I, you know, I really wanted that. Um, coming to Montreal, uh, and getting into this, like I, I've been, I've been really wanting to tell stories about the ocean, actually. And I got started at Beside because uh, they were really sympathetic uh, to that type of storytelling. And I was just, I had just been working as a journalist, doing science journalism and tech journalism, and and uh, and I just kept being like a 
pitching and wanting to write stories about bluefin tuna and stuff like that, you know, and, uh, um, and so, you know, Beside was receptive to that. And the thing that, that was cool about them, and I think it's, fr I think it's part of French culture because they're, they're, Quebec has this, uh, outdoor culture that's really strong. And since being here, I, you know, I, a, a um, Quebec, Quebec law friend of mine roped me into a five day ski trip through Charlevoix, which you nearly killed me, but it was, you know, never, it was an undertaking that I, I just felt um, quintessentially Quebecois and I was, you know, um, uh, grateful to be part of it. And, and uh, um, so there's that outdoor culture that you would find just, and it's just as strong as it is in BC, I think. Um, but, uh, because it's French, the French are philosophical, and 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 uh, and I find that in in Beside, um, there's this existential quality. You know, there's that kind of, um, you know, I actually just recently interviewed David Saint Jacques, who was a Quebec um, astronaut. He was the last Canadian to do a spacewalk. Would have imagined an astronaut to be a sort of a very technical kind of mind, but he was a real poet. Um, you should try to get him on the show if you can. He's a, he's a dream to, to talk to. And he talks about the Earth hanging in space, you know, with this tiny cloak of atmosphere. And it, it, he, he's so eloquent about it. And uh, I was just thinking about it because the, the, you know, the publisher's note also is, is this kind of from space kind of view. This is our only planet and we're here. So uh, I think that the magazine combines that, those two elements that that uh, you know blue marble this gorgeous gorgeous little uh, terrarium in in the reaches of space with that let's get outside and 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 go tromping through the snow kind of mentality you know the two come together uh, and it's quite a quite a beautiful marriage yeah i like that so you mentioned that you wanted to write about the ocean you and you talked about that that piece on shifting baselines yeah. where you mentioned Daniel Pauly and so on. But have you written other articles about the ocean and what was really interesting about that? Yeah, uh, well, this this ties into our um, citizen science theme because I got hooked up with the uh, um, OceanWise for their last project and wrote about it for Beside where um, we did some, we did some surreptitious uh, um, genetic testing on some uh, some some local fish yeah uh, I, I remember reading about that yeah yeah it was fun yeah yeah i did uh you know did some fish and chip restaurants in the city um it's such a cool project you know you take take a take a piece and mail it in and then they give you and the, of course the punchline is is that most fish isn't what you think it is, you know? I mean, cod's not a perfect example because cod is typically cod. It's, it's not, I mean, you can, other white fish can, can, be, can be flipped in, but generally, uh, but, but, you know, it, it's, it would, that's interesting because most restaurants have no idea where their cod comes from. And then beyond that, I mean, we're, consumers are being duped to, a, to an outlandish degree. I, I, I forget all the stats off the top of my head, but, but it is, shocking the degree to which the things that we buy are mislabeled um, and uh, that's because the global uh, supply chain is uh, insane uh, for for fish and uh, you know I mean and that, you know just as a just sort of as a, as a side note because I was also writing I wrote a couple stories about bluefin and that's an interesting story because 
they that became a delicacy sushi caught on i mean it's so recent it's just like the last few decades sushi caught on in in california in like the 70s you know what i mean and then it came became huge in the 80s and into the 90s and now of course it's 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 really big and bluefin went from being uh, a garbage fish that nobody cared about that they literally made into cat food or just buried if they caught it they only did they only wanted to see it for its size you know they just caught it for fun and then now you know of course it's this prized fish that's been fished nearly to extinction and uh they've been catching it in pei where i'm from um and uh you know sport fishermen having a grand time catching it except for now the, the bluefin swim up to the boats because they're starving because the herring fishery is overfished um so they they can put them on the line really easily now anyway it's all sort of bleak but what's interesting about that is that the you know the global supply chain was really kicking in i mean flight also i mean airplanes are are not that old you know on the scale of things you know um so then they started in the you know uh at the same time that sushi became popular, they started catching bluefin and PEI and, and, and Cape Breton, flying it to Japan for processing, and then flying it to California or, or to Toronto to be eaten uh, um, in, and at the same time that they invented refrigerators. Like, it all just kind of happened, and then, and then the whole ocean just went like, and, and uh, it's uh, just those kinds of stories just like, like, make me shiver. I, I just can't believe this world that we that we live in um uh, but yeah so that that's you know that that ties in also to these other stories about there's so much obscurity layered in when you have fish being caught in one place and processed somewhere else and packaged somewhere else and then devoured somewhere else you know all in the space of a couple days yeah and and do you remember any any of these fish tests where people were saying were thinking they were eating one thing did you find out what they were actually eating I, I'd have to, I don't have it in my head, but I know for sure that people are wildly overpaying uh, when the, the, uh, the it, it always is uh, in favor of uh, somebody along the line to, <laughs> to change the label. So uh, uh, people are paying a lot of money for, for, for common fish. That, that's certainly true. Mm. Um, but I, I wish I had the numbers. You'll, you'll have to look it up or something. Yeah, yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. Um, so in terms of the, the visual presentation of, um, of the Beside magazine, and of course it's, it's uh, published two times a year, but the rest is it's an online yeah. publication, right? Yeah. So how would you describe the, the visual presentation both on the web and, and uh, in, in print form? You know, we won a, I mean, we won a National Magazine Award last year for our you know, design and... and uh, um, primarily for you know the photography that we feature uh, so yeah this is uh, um, I'm a writer you know always just been about text and and um, but now um, really uh, much more involved in um, collaborations between writers and, and photographers so we're always working with uh, uh, working with photographers um, so yeah I mean that I think that we you know it mean it makes for a lot of uh, scrolling on Instagram and you know hunting out you know I'm I'm constantly searching for 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 new photographers uh, um, but there are there are, we just work with the best people and and so uh, it's been um, there's a lot of exciting people that we get to work with yeah and it's and I would I would say I would make the distinction that we're not uh, 
not to speak ill of, uh, but we're, we're different than, um, you know, like a National Geographic or something like that. It's not a wildlife. Um, it's not a landscape publication. It's really where it's that it's our mission is bridging the gap between nature and culture. So we're always looking at the, um, at the ways that people are either, you know, reclaiming and recovering traditional practice or finding ways to be on the land, you know, um, uh, so it's that synthesis of sort of the old and new that we're always kind of hunting out, you know, so we, we just, we just love to meet those people that are, you know, at the, the vanguard of this transformed relationship with the earth that we're all kind of pulling for, you know, so we're, we're all just trying to, you know, find those, those brave souls who are a couple of steps ahead of uh, most people, you know. For sure. And obviously, Montreal is a food city, a restaurant city. And um, of course, we're living in a time where they're having a real rough time mm-hmm. of it. But um, there is definitely, um, I think there has been at least over the last 10 years or so, uh, an attempt by many restaurants to look for an authentic Quebec cuisine, right? And, mm-hmm. and you know, I mean, my favorite restaurant is Joe Beef and Liverpool House. Mm-hmm. And I know, you know, they published their there are two cookbooks, which are also stories that link, mm-hmm. you know, humans to nature and to tradition. Absolutely. And, yeah. um, and so how much of that is factored into uh, what you're covering in the magazine? Or? A lot. Yeah, we, uh, we do food stories. Um, Ariane Paré-Legale, if you've been to Jean Talon Market, <laughs> you, you, you might recognize uh, um, their... Uh, their stand, uh, Guillaume Legal, he's been creating products from from wild gathering and and, and foraging. Um, I think for for three or four decades, and and now they have uh, they have all the. It's called Gourmet Sauvage. Yeah, I know them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah I bought some of their products before. Yeah, yeah. They're 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 so cool. Yeah. So uh, oh, that's just an example. I mean, I think we 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 uh, we were very interested in in cuisine and and the the intersection of eating and because that's actually really our, our our primary contact with the natural world is is what what we put on our plates you know um so uh we never miss that that topic when we put an issue together yeah nice well we're basically out of time but um i guess if people are interested in in finding out about the magazine where would they go on the web or do you know what what it cost to, to subscribe and yeah yeah for sure uh so you can find us online at it's pretty easy uh, url to remember it's just beside dot media so it's the word beside dot media so it's it's pretty uh pretty simple to look up um and uh it costs uh, 35 dollars uh per year so it's pretty cheap to, that's uh for two uh for two copies um people tell me uh all the time that they subscribe, I think people uh, really enjoy having this uh, this around, and it's a big, thick book. So you know, you can uh, uh, when you get it, you can you can spend a good few weeks uh, pouring through it. <laughs> nice, nice. Well, thanks so much for joining me today, uh, yeah, Mark. Thanks, it's been great. Yeah. Appreciate right. it. Take care. Thanks.